We turn to Job chapter 23, sort of as a springboard to look at several other passages in this book. There's a book out by Philip Yancey called Disappointment with God. He said that every Christian has three questions that lurk within him. Often afraid to voice these questions because to ask these kind of questions would seem unspiritual. He said the first question is this, is God unfair? That's the question, remember, that Asaph struggled with in Psalm 73. God, how come I see the righteous going through some, so much suffering and the wicked seeming to prosper so? Are you fair? The second question is this, is God silent? That's the question Job asks in this book. How come God doesn't speak to me in this? He seems silent, he seems removed, he seems hidden. And actually that's the third question, is God hidden? Where is God when I suffer? And as Yancey talks about these questions, he says one time he visited a little Indian village, a Shipibo Indian village in Peru, where a thriving church had been founded years ago by a missionary. And the story is that the missionary came to this little village, established a church, brought his wife, she got pregnant, they had a son, and six months after the son was born, the son died. And the son is buried actually next to a path that leads to this little village church. Now marked by a granite marker. And Yancey says that the people in the village will say that the missionary came, but ever since the death of the missionary's son, that missionary began to get sick, began to crack up even mentally, couldn't handle that pain. He eventually got sickened with nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and they took him to a large hospital in a major city, and they found that he had no amoebas, no germs that would cause the diarrhea, and they diagnosed it as hysterical diarrhea, sent him back home to the United States permanently. Yancey tells the story this way, As I stood beside the crumbling granite marker grave, which the Indian women now use as a place to rest their water pots, I tried to put myself in that young missionary's place. I wondered what he had prayed as he stood there in the noonday sun. And those three questions kept coming to my mind. My guide said the man was tormented by the question of unfairness. His baby had done nothing wrong. The missionary brought his family to serve God in the jungle. Was this their reward? He had also prayed for some sign of God's presence or at least a word of comfort. But he felt alone. He felt no answer. As if distrustful of God's own sympathy, the missionary took on a form of sympathetic suffering in his own body. True atheists, says Yancey, do not feel disappointed in God. They expect nothing and they receive nothing. But those who commit their lives to God no matter what instinctively expect something in return. Are those expectations wrong? Job struggles with this. He lost everything in the matter of a few days. He's been stripped physically. He lost his children. And the remainder of the book of Job, for the most part, is the anguish of a suffering man and the philosophy of his three quote-unquote friends who examined Job's suffering sort of in a test tube. Well, now what's wrong here? What's the real issue in your life? Now, before we get into this this morning, by way of recap, there's a few lessons 
that we have already learned, that we should keep them fixed in our minds. Number one, suffering comes to every person. We see that in the Bible very plainly. Suffering is not a respecter of persons. It comes to young, old, spiritual, and unspiritual alike. Also, we saw last week that some suffering is because of something that we are unaware of many times. Like Job, there was this conversation going on between the devil and God. And God allowed Satan to have some sort of reign when it came to this. The third thing we noticed last week is that even if the source is satanic, and a lot of people say it's the devil doing this and the devil doing that, know this, his power is limited and he can only act by permission. His power is kept under check by God's sovereignty. Only by what God permits can the devil work. And fourthly, God still operates by this principle. He rewards the righteous and he punishes the wicked. But we don't see that immediately. We will see it ultimately. Remember, Asaph struggled with this. And he said, then I went into the sanctuary and I looked into the future and I understood their end. Now this morning we're going to notice something else. And that is, a spiritual person can suffer so intensely that that person can say certain things they would not ordinarily say. They can act in a certain way, in deep anguish, they wouldn't ordinarily act like. And also we will see that a person in such suffering can know certain things and do certain things that will help them. That will help them. So first of all, let's look at the anguish that Job felt. In verse 1, Job answered and said, Even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. I'd like you to turn back to chapter 3 for just a minute. And we're going to look at a few instances where Job talks in the midst of his physical condition. And you're going to hear the words right from his mouth. Now, as you're turning there, a word about his physical condition. If you were to have medical experts look at the book of Job, they wouldn't all agree on the diagnosis of his disease, but there were some symptoms that we know happened to this man. Let me just tell them to you so you know what kind of suffering he's going through. First of all, we know that he had lesions, inflamed lesions all over his body that caused him to itch. We read this in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head so that he took for himself a potsherd with which to scratch himself. Secondly, we know that these ulcerations, it would seem, had maggots within them. Listen to chapter 7, verse 5. My body, Job says, is clothed with worms and scabs. My skin is broken and festering. In chapter 30, he indicates that he had this constant pain that came from the depths of his being in his bones. He says, night pierces my bones, my gnawing pains never rest. And also the skin of Job seemed to be darkened and falling off in some places. He said in chapter 30, verse 30, My skin grows black and peels, and my body burns with fever. Add to that sleepless nights and nightmares. As he says in chapter 7, verse 14, You frighten me with dreams, and you terrify me with visions. Now, keeping that in mind, you'll be able to understand why this guy talks the way he does, what he struggles with. 
In chapter 3, he, or yeah, chapter 3, he begins by saying, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. In verse 11, he said, Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? Look down at verse 23. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and, who, in, and whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes before I eat, and my groanings pour out like water. For the thing that I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, for trouble comes. Chapter 6. Job answered and said, Oh, that my grief were fully weighed, and my calamity laid with on the scales. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea, therefore my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me, and my spirit drinks in their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Go over to chapter 10. Verse 1, My soul hates or loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands and smile on the counsel of the wicked? Same chapter down at verse 18. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Oh, that I had perished and no eye had seen me. I would have been as though... I had not been. I would have been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Cease, leave me alone, that I may take a little comfort. I look over at chapter 23 once again where we began. Job answered and said, Even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find Him, that is God. I want to find God in my suffering. Where is He? that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would you contend with me? Would he contend with me in his great power? No, but he would take note of me. There the upright could reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Look, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. Job is swamped in disillusionment. He has been stripped physically, emotionally, and he is struggling now spiritually. And in that struggle, he says some things. He says them out loud. He complains out loud. He's giving full vent to his anxiety, his anguish. Experts on uh, grief tell us that a person who suffers intensely, let's say he's lost someone due to death or that person is suffering some kind of debilitating illness, goes through periods of grief. And first is that denial phase. person says, this can't be happening. No, this isn't happening to me. And then there's the bargaining stage where that person may say, oh God, please, if you just... Change this, I promise I'll... And you fill in the blank. Then comes anger. Anger at God, anger at people, 
anger at yourself. After the anger stage, often comes depression. Periods of withdrawal. Deep depression. Everything seems dark. Eventually, the next phase of grief is called acceptance. This has happened. It's difficult. I'm dealing with it. Eventually, the final stage of grief is known as hope. That person once again sees light at the end of the tunnel. But before that period, often comes a volcano of emotions. That person may lash out in anger. That person may withdraw. That person may be usually very rational and spiritual. And he might say some irrational and what we would say unspiritual things. A man by the name of Elie Wiesel, who suffered the Nazi concentration camps and saw atrocities as a teenager in Nazi Germany. It took such a toll on him, the things that he saw during his teenage years, that his story was written about by one author who said concerning him, For Elie Wiesel, Nietzsche's cry expressed an almost physical reality. God is dead. The God of love, of gentleness, of comfort has vanished forevermore. And how many pious Jews have experienced this death? On that day, horrible, even among the days of horror, when a child watched the hanging of another child, who he tells us had the face of a sad angel. Elie Wiesel heard someone behind him groan, Where is God? Where is God? Where can He be now? Those are the thoughts of a person who's been long in a tunnel of suffering. And the key for those of us who are around sufferers, is to be unshockable for those people who are suffering. To not go, I can't believe you said that. Or going on with some long speech about how they shouldn't be this, but they should do that. We should make room for that type of anxiety. We should not take it personally if they're lashing out in anger against us. You know, Jesus was in a situation sort of like this. Lazarus was sick. Martha said, quick, get Jesus, quickly, get him. He's down by the Jordan River. Call him up here. Jesus heard about it. What did Jesus do? He didn't come. When Jesus finally came, Lazarus had already been dead and buried. And Martha was at that anger stage. And as Jesus comes up, She rushes up to him and says, Jesus, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Now, did Jesus go, (gasps) Did he rebuke her? Did he give her a long speech? No, he understood that people often say things like that in deep grief. He said, your brother will live again. Do you believe this? Oh, I believe in the resurrection that he'll do, you know. But he understood her grief and he let her say it. Now, there's Job in anguish. Where is God? Next, I want you to look at what his friends say before we hop into the next verses in chapter 23. We've seen the anguish he felt. Look at now the analysis that Job fought. And go with me now to chapter 4. Book of Job, chapter 4. We're not going to read lots of these things, just one section in chapter 4. Job's friends are all around him. They're watching the episode of pain. And so they're listening to what he's saying. They're listening as he gives his complaint and as he asks for God. And all of Job's friends 
have a clean, cut and dried philosophy about suffering. Here it is. They believe that only wicked people suffer and the righteous people are vindicated and that if you are suffering, if you have this disease, you are in sin. Quite a comfort, huh? And so they say in chapter 4, Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Surely you have instructed many. You have strengthened weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling. You have strengthened the feeble knees. But now it comes upon you, and you are weary. It touches you, and you are troubled. Is not your reverence your confidence? And the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember now, listen to this question. Remember now, who ever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. The blast of God, by the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger they are consumed. Job, we've observed that righteous people don't suffer what you're suffering. And it would only seem that because you're suffering so greatly that you are a great sinner. Now it gets worse. In the same chapter, Eliphaz says he had a dream, a vision from God about Job's suffering. Have you ever met a person like this? Oh, God spoke to me about you. When a person does that, there's no recourse. There's no defense. They say, oh, well, God told me. Well, how do you argue when a person says that? No, God didn't tell you that, especially in Job's case. Oh, Job, you know, you're suffering because you're a sinner. Besides that, I've had a vision about this. God spoke to me all about you. Now, is that true, that people who are righteous don't suffer? Well, no, it's not true. We've established that already. Psalm 73, Asaph struggles with it. God, why do I see the unrighteous prosper and the godly suffer? That bugs me. Until I went into the sanctuary and I understood their end, but that really bothered him. Besides that, Solomon even noticed this. Solomon said in the Scriptures, This I have seen, that the righteous often die in their righteousness, and the wicked will live long in their wickedness. Nonetheless, Job's friends have that philosophy. It's because there's sin in your life. There's a woman who wrote a letter to Christian Research Institute. Actually, they received so many letters on this issue. This letter was about a woman who had been born blind. She was blind all of her life. She eventually became a Christian. And after becoming a Christian, she attended church. Well, the church she... Uh, attended initially was a church who believed the same philosophy of Job's friends. She began being disillusioned. They said, well, the reason that you are blind still is because there's some sin in your life. You're a sinful person. You need to come to grips with that satanic origin because God's will is not that you remain in your blindness or you're not healed because you don't have enough faith. And so she wrote this letter. I spent hours, sleepless nights, agonizing over the issue. I became depressed. I began to lose my joy. I even quit praying. Some Sundays I simply couldn't stand church because I felt like an outsider in God's family watching his pet children get blessed because of their faith. 
If I was doing or not doing something that hindered God, I was at a loss to discern what it was. God, I said in utter despair, what do you want me to do? Eventually she discovered that her blindness was not due to lack of faith or sin in her life, and she continues to write, I finally recognized that in Jesus' eyes I was whole and that I was still as important to Him as I had been at the beginning of our relationship. And I determined that no one was ever again going to take His joy away from me. I have discovered that many people want to see me healed or pretend to be healed because my blindness upsets their theological apple cart. It's hard to believe in their beliefs when a disabled person who thanks God for her disability comes along. It's as if their faith won't stand if I don't go along with their agenda. I believe they want my healing for their own sake and not for mine. Job, we've observed this. We're your friends. There's sin in your life. I got a vision from God. Now, this conversation goes back and forth, and it finally comes to an emotional high point in chapter 16. Would you turn there with me? Job, uh, after a diatribe from Eliphaz about his suffering, sort of like a cat boxed into a corner, now lashes back. Job answered and said, I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. So words of wind have an end. In other words, when are you windbags going to cease? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do. If your soul were in my soul's place, I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you. But I would strengthen you with my mouth. And the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. In life, you and I will face pain. How do you respond to pain, whether it comes to you or to other people? Well, you might respond like Job's wife. Curse God and die. Get it over with. Deny Him. Why would God let this happen to you? Or you might reply like Job's friends. Oh, this didn't happen because you're righteous. It happened because there's sin in your life. Or you could respond like Job. Job's basic philosophy is this. I don't know why it happened. But I'll tell you this. God knows and I trust Him. Though you slay me, I will still trust you, Lord. God is still in control. My deep prayer is that God will raise up among us encouragers when people suffer rather than analyzers rather than picking people up and putting them in a test room and going hmm I see the problem here how about just the ministry of comfort and encouragement how do you do that well here's a few simple ways number one live compassionately around people live compassionately Paul the Apostle said if one member of the body suffer what? We suffer with it. We suffer together. We all suffer. Peter added to that and he said, be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and be humble. You know, some Christians will approach sufferers with pious speeches or condemning words. Let me tell you of one instance. A couple had a baby. They were so excited. True story. She came to me. The baby started developing a sickness. 
the people in the church where they were fellowshipping said, this is not of God at all. This is not God's will. This baby needs to be healed. We'll stand together with you in faith. And that's great. They did stand in faith and they prayed and they claimed healing. But then the baby died. And they attributed the death to the lack of the parent's faith or sin in the parent's life. And that fellowship shunned. They never came to the funeral. They never contacted the couple after the funeral. They were shunned by that church. It went against what they believed should happen. Live compassionately. Now, use the Scripture. In fact, that's the only source of hope is the resources and the promises of God. Use the Scripture, but use it lovingly. Use it tenderly. Use it strategically. And I would say keep it short and simple. Uh, Four-hour Bible studies in Leviticus wouldn't be called for, obviously. Pray strategically. Keep it short as well. Don't pray all the way around the world when you've got a suffering person in front of you. Live compassionately. Listen attentively. Did you know that a suffering person needs to tell their story? It helps them. Sometimes people think, oh, I know you don't want to talk about it. It's too painful. They need to talk about it. They need to talk about the loss of their child or their father or their sister or the disease they have. They need to talk about it frequently. And a good listener is like a walking intensive care unit. Just sit there and listen attentively. And then finally, act anticipatively. Don't say, well, here's my number if you need anything, call. Anticipate the need. Call for the person. Prepare meals for the person. Call the doctor. Make funeral arrangements. Act anticipatively. Now back to chapter 23, after looking at the anguish that he felt and the analysis that he fought, look now again at verses 8 through 10. We see the answers that Job found. Look, I go forward, but he's not there, and backwards, but I can't perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I can't behold him. When he turns to the right, I cannot see him. But he knows the way that I take. Stop right there. Do you see the context of this, what he's saying? He's saying, I want to find God desperately. Where's God when I suffer? I look for him everywhere. I don't know what he's up to, but I know this. He's aware of it. He knows what I'm up to. That's a view of God's sovereignty. It's the belief that things that are hidden from me are not hidden from God. God is aware of my suffering. He's aware of my pain. David said in Psalm 1, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. And in Psalm 60, or 37, he said, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his path. You know that knowing that God knows and is aware of what you're going through, intimately aware, even though you can't find Him at a time of grief, the idea that God knows where I'm at, God's aware of my pain, revolutionizes our periods of suffering. A couple weeks ago, we were playing hide-and-seek at my house at night. Nathan loves to play it. We love to play it with him. Now, my son's seven years old. He's afraid of the dark. He doesn't like to go to his bedroom alone. But when you play hide-and-seek, the lights are out. Completely. It was our turn to hide. Nathan and I were going to hide. My wife was going to seek. So she would go and, <coughs> excuse me, one side of the house and she'd count and we would hide. And I thought, I'm going to find a place that she'll never find. And I decided to hoist Nathan up to the top of my bookshelves 
in my office on this narrow little ledge about eight inches wide. And, and he would never go up there alone. He'd be deathly afraid to, to perch himself up there, especially in the dark. I said, Nathan, I got the place. And I hoisted him up and I laid him down on that shelf. Then, on top of that, not only was he in the dark, but then I was going to go hide so he would know where I'm at. He was perfectly secure. He never was afraid. Even though he didn't know where I was, I hid some other place in the house. But what kept him is that he knew that I knew where he was. And then I'm not going to leave him up there all night. (laughs) I'm going to get him eventually. He'd never go up there alone. He's afraid of the dark, but he wasn't afraid that night. In fact, he was giggling the whole time I had him up there. That's the only thing that gave him away and that let my wife find him is that he was giggling. She said, how come laughing's coming from the bookcase? And it was Nathan. I don't know where God is, but he knows where I'm at. It's dark, but he knows I'm up here. Like the little kid who was walking with his grandpa, they were far from home, and grandpa asked his grandson, hey, where are we? And so I said, I don't know. Well, how far are we from home? Little boy said, I don't know. And so the grandpa said, sounds to me like you're lost. He said, no, grandpa, I can't be lost. I'm with you. I don't know where God is, but I'm not lost. I'm with him. He knows the way that I take. So here's his answers. God's aware. Secondly, God is at work. Look at the last part of verse 10. He knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. This is now the height of Job's search for a solution. He knows the way that I take. And when I'm through with this, I will come forth as gold. Now, folks, right here is the dividing line between a Christian and a non-Christian who suffers. A non-Christian faces grief and suffering, and calamity. And says, this, there's no reason, there's no purpose in this. A Christian can say, no, there is. There's a master goldsmith behind all this who's refining me. And I'm going to come out a lot better in the end if I hold on to him. When I'm tested, I will come forth as gold. You know, we've told you before about how the goldsmith in the ancient days would place the gold in the furnace and it would become molten and the dross would rise to the top and he would skim it off from the top. And what goldsmiths would do is very carefully bend over the molten gold, not too close, but they would look to see if they can find their reflection in the gold. And if it was murky and muddy, they know the dross was still coming to the top. They'd scrape it off and keep scraping it off. And they knew that the heating process was finished when he could look inside the molten gold and see his reflection. When are the trials in our lives done? When God can look at you and see his image in you. And when you have come forth, when you have finished the testing, you will come forth as gold. It's the same idea that Peter said in the New Testament. He said, in this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold which perishes, though it is tried or tested by fire, will result in the glory, praise, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now keep something in mind. Job was called what by God? What kind of a man was Job? 
righteous. Blameless was the word he used. Satan, if you looked at my servant Job, he's blameless. And yet Job himself says, I'm being refined. There's more work that needs to be done. This is the mark of truly a spiritual man. A lesser man would say, hey, I don't need any more refining, all right? I'm spiritual enough. I'm shiny enough. I don't need any furnace time. Job says, I guess I do. He's refining me. He's testing me and I'll come forth as gold. I want to remind you of something, that some of the greatest songs the church has ever sung were written by people who wrote them not as they were sitting on the beach in Maui, enjoying all the prosperity in the world, but in times of great grief. Several of these could be noted. Charlotte Elliott wrote the song, Just As I Am, Without One Plea, while she was a helpless invalid. That's the song that's played every time Billy Graham has a crusade as people come forward to receive Christ. Francis Havergal wrote in Ill Health, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Fanny Crosby, when she was blind, wrote scads of songs. And of course, I've shared with you before about Horatio Spafford, who sent his family on a cruise. And they left from New York going to France. The ship began to sink. All three of his children were killed in that boat accident. His wife was saved alone. When he got word, the night he got word that his children died, he paced the floor of his office and he wrote this song that we have sung at Calvary Chapel that says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Chuck Colson was put in prison because of the Watergate scandal, yet he will tell you today, that though the judge was the human instrument in it, God's will was that he suffer in prison so that he might get out and have a heart for those people who are in prison and start the largest prison ministry ever, prison fellowship. When I'm tested, Lord, I will come forth as gold. Finally, I want you to look at the last two verses in closing. And we look at the action that Job followed, not only the answers that he found, but the action that he followed Verse 11. I love this part. It it, it reaches that high pinnacle again. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Verse 11 strikes a death blow to Satan's accusation. Remember the first couple chapters? God's bragging. Hey, have you looked at Job? He's blameless. He fears God. He shuns evil. And what did Satan say? He said, well, no wonder he shuns evil. You blessed him so richly materially. Give him a little disease. Give him a little pain. Take away some of these things. Let me get at him. Let me get at him. And he'll curse you to your face. In other words, the only reason people serve you, God, is because what you give them and do for them. This ends the tests. Satan's accusations are now defeated. Job is left with nothing but God. And yet he says, I'm still going to hold fast. I'm still going to follow him. I've dogged his steps. I have persevered. I have persevered. You know, Job was not an Alka-Seltzer follower. There are Alka-Seltzer Christians. They're those who make a big splash, but they fizzle out rather quickly. Woo, ah, mm, great. But what about a period like Job's period? 
You still there? You still following? You still holding on to him? Oh, I'll follow him no matter what, Job said. A determined pursuit. Verse 12. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. When did Job say this? When his body was covered with running ulcers. He was resting where? In the promises of God. I don't understand it. I don't know where God is, but God knows. God's at work, and I'm resting in His Word. I've esteemed the words of His mouth more than my sustenance. Where do you rest when you suffer? I, as a pastor, watch people in times of crisis all the time. I watch what they rely on and lean on. Some lean on the promises of God like Job. Others lean on the bottle. Others lean on that powdery white chemical substance that they snort through their nose. Others rely on some flaky worldly philosophy that doesn't hold up when times really get tough. When the roof of life caves in, what do you lean on? I've esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I once read the words of a plaque that said, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. I've earned it. I've deserved it. I've worked hard for it. And nobody's going to keep me from having one. Now, the alternative to that is Job's words. Forget that. I've esteemed the words of his mouth more than what I think my body needs. In fact, have you found that in times of great suffering, you are driven to the Scriptures and they become more meaningful to you than any other time? It seems that when we are pampered, the Scriptures can often become a bit dull and routine. But oh, how those psalms come alive. We go, ooh, yes, I can relate David, Asaph, Job. Oh, I can relate now. Martin Luther said, I never would have understood the Scripture were it not for affliction. David said in Psalm 119, It is good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Now, a little preventative maintenance here. Let's study the Bible now. Let's give ourselves to it now. Let's read through it. Let's understand what the Bible says about all aspects of life so that in tough times, we've got those handles, those resources, God's promises hidden in our hearts that we can grab a hold of by faith and say, I don't understand why, but I'm going to trust you. Don't just buy a Bible to smash flowers in your living room coffee table or to write births and deaths as a family record. Read it. Feed your soul upon it. May you read the Scripture as food, as he said, more than my necessary food. I pray that every one of us will get spiritual indigestion from reading the Bible so much. We'll even burp up a few Scriptures throughout the week. We've had so much to eat. It's such a part of our lives. One person noted... If a man's Bible is coming apart, it's a good indication he's not. Read it constantly. Esteem it more than your necessary food. Have a daily time of feasting. Last week, we opened our message speaking about Charles Spurgeon. I quote him a lot. You've heard that over the years. Charles Spurgeon suffered gout, depression. He said, I face certain things that you've never faced. I hope you never have to face them. And he also said the worst thing that could happen to any Christian is having too smooth of a pathway. After he suffered intently for a long time, 
Mr. Spurgeon finally said, I bear witness that the worst days I've ever had have turned out to be my best days. And when God has seemed most cruel to me, he has then been most kind. If there is anything in this world for which I would bless him more than for anything else, it's for pain and affliction. Boy, that sounds a lot like 2 Corinthians 12. I rejoice in my infirmity that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I am sure, says Spurgeon, that in these things the richest, tenderest love has been manifested to me. Our Father's wagons rumble most heavily when they are bringing us the richest freight of the bouillon of His grace. Love letters from heaven are often sent in black-edged envelopes. The cloud that is black with horror is big with mercy. Fear not the storm. It brings healing in its wings. And when Jesus is with you in that vessel, that boat, the tempest only hastens the ship to its desired haven. Oh, well put. Not from somebody who analyzed it, but from somebody who experienced it. Let's pray. Father, our deep prayer this morning is first of all that We might say, along with Job, during times of grief, I don't know where God is, but God knows where I am. I'm being refined. I'll come out of it with gold. I'm going to persevere and continue to follow Him with faith, trusting His promises and His Word, not wavering. And I'm going to esteem His promises, His Word, 